Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. Acts of the Apostles, we're halfway through, so let's talk about this. We've dealt with the basic data, and now I want to deal with a little bit of the high points within the book of Acts and try and at least comment on a few things that I think may not be picked up when you're reading it or may not be understood in a sermon when you drop into the middle of it. So letter A, let's jot this down, the uh, launch of the church. And I think the most important thing in Acts chapter 2 is to consider the timing. Everything is orchestrated by God in the fullness of time he sent his son and everything about Christ's ministry was done according to God's plan as Peter preached there in Acts chapter 2. But think about the fact that we have this interval between the crucifixion and the start of the church. And you may think about that, just like, why would, why would God do that? I think in part, you need to remember that God could have picked a better time symbolically and theologically to see Christ die outside the walls of Jerusalem than to have him crucified on the Passover. But the Passover, you need to know, is one of the three pilgrimage feasts where all the people who are giving their devotion to God and their worship in their hometowns and villages are supposed to come to Jerusalem to worship. So you have a mass of people in Jerusalem when Jesus is crucified. So with the greatest spotlight on Christ, he dies during the the redemptive symbolism of the Passover. And then, of course, rises on the third day. So, so much going on there, even as we'll see in our study of Acts and Acts 24, as he's leaving Jerusalem there with some of the pilgrims going back, everyone is talking about it. Cleopas says, everyone is aware of it. They're shocked as Jesus queries them and asks them about what's going on and asking and really seeking through the Socratic method. What do you make of all this? They say, don't you know? I mean, everyone's talking about it because this message was to be spread. So then you also have the start of the church on a pilgrimage festival. We wait until this thing now we think of as Pentecost. Now, from a Christian perspective, we often think of that simply as the start of the church. But remember, that's one of the three pilgrimage feasts of the Old Testament. And again, you come back to Jerusalem to worship and to be a part of what is known as the Feast of Pentecost. Pentecost, of course, means 50th Pentecost, pentagram, pent five. Pentecost was the 50th day after Passover. So you've got all those weeks intervening. It was the celebration of the first fruits in the spring. So that is interesting. Of course, the other one, by the way, just to round out, because I said 333 pilgrimage, the other one was the Feast of Tabernacles, which I preached on from Leviticus a few Christmases back. The Feast of Booths, it's also called. The Feast of Harvest. Pentecostals, by the way, are called Pentecostals because they're focused on this event and the supernatural event there of the outpouring of the Spirit. And again, they're interested in the dynamic experience of the speaking in tongues. But remember, the speaking in tongues, as I said last week, was people who were there on the pilgrimage that were hearing the wonders and the deeds of God in their own languages. It's only the residents of Jerusalem who don't know those foreign languages that are saying, oh, they're just, they must be drunk. Well, because they don't understand what they're saying. But of course, the visitors from all these other places that had come for the Feast of Pentecost, they'd heard all these things clearly in the dialects and languages of their hometown. But that 
Indwelling of the Spirit is important because it changes the relationship of the person who trusts in God, who believes in God, who penitent, finds the forgiveness of God. It changes their relationship with the Spirit in a way that's distinct from the Old Testament. For instance, when we make our worship songs and pattern them after David, who says in his kingly role, don't take your spirit from me after his adultery with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah, he's asking about something that would make perfect sense in an Old Covenant setting, which is the kind of the coming and going, at least in terms of of the sanctioning of the spirit in people's lives for particular roles and particular offices. And to be the king, of course, you had to have this endowment of the spirit and that was God's blessing upon your life. And he didn't want that to leave, which is a loaded phrase to speak of his fear that he might not be king anymore. He might lose that responsibility of shepherding the people of God. But at the coming of the spirit that was looked forward to in Jeremiah 31, you have what Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14 says is a permanent indwelling of the spirit. It wasn't that the spirit wasn't active in the lives of people that trust in God in the Old Testament. It's just that now the residence of the spirit would be much like a king or a prophet in the Old Testament having that kind of intimacy with the triune God and it would never leave them doesn't mean we don't grieve the spirit doesn't mean we can't quench the spirit doesn't mean that we aren't in bad relationship with the spirit at times in our lives but as it says in Ephesians 1 13 and 14 those of us that have believed in him we were sealed with the promised holy spirit that's the new covenant promise of a new indwelling relationship with the holy spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it that's an enduring continuing one-time event the filling of the spirit which is part of how the namesake of the feast of Pentecost is unfortunately a misunderstood doctrine in that they often think that you can get the spirit and lose the spirit or get part of the spirit and then you got to get more of the spirit. When it comes to the Bible, it says in Romans chapter 8 in the New Testament that if you don't have the spirit, you're not a child of God. And so this is not Christianity 2.0 when you get the spirit. This is about all of us having a connection with the living God because of an indwelling of the spirit, which according to the Bible should change the way we act, change the way we think, changes our values. It's not perfect in the sense that he is perfect, but it's not perfect in the sense that we're still encased in our fallen humanity and we're going to have a battle between the spirit of God, our regenerate spirit and the flesh that we live in, as Paul called it the flesh, this fallen principle within our humanity. So nevertheless, that was the distinction. The spirit, as Jesus said to the apostles, is with you, but then he'll be in you. That kind of change in the relational illustration of prepositions, with you and in you, that was a distinction, at least in terms of permanence. It wasn't that you didn't have that phrase in the Old Testament. You did. The spirit was in people, but there was a different commitment of the triune God for every individual believer in the New Testament that he would take up residence and never leave them. There would be no pulling back of the spirit. There would be a residence as a guarantee of the spirit until we get our inheritance. The death of Stephen, the life and death of Stephen. Stephen is an important figure for a couple of reasons in the New Testament. One, because we have the longest recorded sermon here of Stephen who goes through the whole history of Israel and basically says to the people that are questioning him and accusing him of blasphemy that he is simply standing in the long line of people in the Old Testament who brought the truth to Israel, but they rejected him. So he recalls all of this and it makes them fuming mad. But the thing we learn about Stephen is he's an upstanding person 
person, that he is a called to be one of the original diakonos, one of the original deacons. Deacon, we think of that as some kind of, perhaps if you grew up in a Baptist church, kind of the ruling board of the church. That's not what they are. In the scriptures, the deacons, and this is the prototype of the deacons. This is not the deacons that are talked about in Titus and 1 Timothy, because it's much more classified in those books with a set of requirements and all the rest. Although there were requirements here, the point of Stephen being a servant was that he was going to be a modeled kind of example of what it means to live out the Christian life in a ministry role. And it was very simple in Acts chapter 6, and that was to serve the tables of the Hellenistic widows who, frankly, the the hardcore Jewish Christians didn't care for. They thought that they were a bit of a uh, compromised group. Nevertheless, Deacon Deacon is a important high view, at least the, the view of it in Scripture, very high in terms of it being someone who is a exemplary leader. And that's why we call them around here, diakonos, we call them ministry leaders because the word deacon means to minister or to serve. And so these are the exemplary servants or the ministry leaders. And we have ministry leaders here in our church. This is the prototype of what that was there. He was one of the seven exemplary servants that were picked in Acts chapter six because of his character and his godliness. He was a preacher and apologist. A lot of what he does in the sermon and in his life is to stand up for the truth of the gospel and defend the fact that the message of the New Testament gospel is the truth. It is one of the interesting characters because he's one of the very rare non-apostolic miracle workers in the New Testament. There are miracles attributed to him even though he's not in the band of the 12. So that is very interesting and you see that in Acts chapter 6 verse 8 that it was a more than a one-time occurrence in his life. He was the first martyr, of course. So he's the first of many things here. The first of the martyrs. A martyr, of course, in the language, the word martyr means maturion. It means a witness. They're testifying to Christ in that they're unyielding and uncompromising and saying, we stand with Christ and we bring his message to you regardless of the persecution. And the ultimate witness is one who's not going to back down even if it costs them their lives. And his death was the beginning of the major persecution in the book of Acts that led to all kinds of scattering of the church, as we'll see in the letters. We really are going to date a lot of things based on that scattering of Christians from Jerusalem. But they're all there in Jerusalem, as you know, from chapter 2, 3, and 4, growing and growing and growing for 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 men and their families, and you have a really big mega church. and instead of keeping them together, you have the dispersion of them all, and a big part of that was the fact that now they're actually killing these Christians. And you see kind of the hostility in the politics today, and you know, when it ramps up to killing one another, you know, that's the place where you see a major kind of a turn into a whole different thing. Stephen, by the way, since my daughter's name is Stephanie, I should tell you, Stephanus is the, the male form of it, the, fem, the masculine form, the feminine form. Stephanie means crown. And Paul loved to talk about his people that he served as his joy and his Stephanus, his crown. So it's a great Greek, Greek word, Greek name. Letter C. Of course, what is of interest when we read the book of Acts is a major change that we're led into starting in chapter 9. Chapter 13, we're going to see this man's ministry take off, but we need to look and think about for a few minutes. One of the highlights of Acts is the radical conversion of Saul, which always gives me hope. I don't even remember who I was talking to yesterday, trying to help and encourage someone. The point is to talk about the fact 
that God can take the most hostile opponents of Christianity and Christians and turn them around. You should know, and because I think sometimes in Sunday school we learn that Saul is his non-Christian name and Paul is his Christian name, kind of like Jesus renaming Cephas to Peter, but that's not the way you should think of it. Remember, Paul in his defense, he reminds the officials that he's been a Roman citizen from birth. Well, as a Roman citizen, his Roman name, which he picked as close to his Hebrew name as possible, which is Saul, well, Paulus in Greek is as close to Saul as you get, so Paul and Saul sound alike. He being from the tribe of Benjamin, we learn, remember in Philippians, Benjamin, of course, was the tribe of the first king, and that was Saul, and he, his parents named him after the first king because he's from the tribe of Benjamin. He gets Saul's name. That's his Hebrew name from birth, and we can assume his Latin name from birth was Paul because he's a Roman citizen. His city of origin is Tarsus, and we're about to get to maps, and I really do hope you have a Bible or Logos on you, and you at least have the Logos basic map set or deluxe map set, or you bought an atlas on Logos, which by the way, I should say, I didn't put this on the the overhead, it's not out yet, but I saw the pre-publication of the ESV Atlas, which is great. In print, we have it in the bookstore. It's kind of pricey, but they're selling it now as a pre-publication sale on Logos, and it's a great, fat, big, very detailed atlas for 19 bucks on Logos.com. Nevertheless, we're going to look at maps in a minute. Tarsus, you can find up in Asia Minor. It's in Southeast Asia Minor, which every time we say Asia Minor, in the Bible, we're talking about modern-day Turkey, where there's a lot of stuff heating up politically there, as you know. Uh, we can take this from the language of... Acts 26, 5 and 6, that he, he himself, of course we know, is a Pharisee. His dad and his grandfather, at least, are Pharisees. And that's big. You're a third generation, at least, Pharisee, which, again, we see that as a name of the bad guys. But those weren't bad guys. These were the scholars of Judaism. Of course, there was a lot of bad activity and a lot of bad actors among the Pharisees during Christ's ministry. And certainly they opposed Christ. But Nevertheless, if you want to know someone that knew the the Bible and you knew the Old Testament, you talked to a Pharisee. So he was a very strict Pharisee and came from a line of Pharisees. How he, um, that should make us wonder, by the way, how did you get your Roman citizenship? That's a good question. I don't really have an answer to. We can only speculate how he got that, perhaps through his parents for some reason. He stood under Gamaliel, and Gamaliel's uh, mentioned in his testimony as he gives his testimony before the authorities later in the book, but in Acts chapter 5, verse 34, he's certainly given as a very prominent leader of, among the Jews. So we know that this was a, here's how it reads, Acts 5, 34, uh, that there, Gamaliel was a Pharisee in the council, a teacher of the law, and he was held in honor by all the people. And he stood up in that scene in Acts 5 and uh, addressed the uh, Sanhedrin. But the point of Gamaliel, being your teacher and a third-generation Pharisee, he's definitely going to be a very privileged, spiritual, and biblically trained man. Very smart. Famed persecutor of the church, which, of course, is the thing that gives us great hope when we we see God picking the worst among us to be the most important, at least in the early church. Here, God picks a guy like Saul, who is vehement against the church of Christ, and he's famed as a persecutor. That's why they didn't want to believe it when he became a, a Christian. Only Barnabas was willing to really take a risk and say, well, I'm going to put my hand out, put my arm around him, and assume that this is a real conversion. His conversion, if you read the story in Acts chapter 9, is a GT1 to use what we were describing in terms of distinction between the God thing that's within the laws of physics and the God things that aren't within the laws of physics, that break the laws of physics. And you know the story, a light, a voice, some kind of strange 
huge effect because of that voice of people not being able to understand what's being said, and yet the Apostle Paul does. They hear something, but they don't perceive it. The light knocks him off of his horse. He's on his way to persecute, and you know the story on the road to Damascus. He's known for being single throughout his writings. You read in 1 Corinthians 7 and elsewhere, he talks about the fact that he does not have a wife, and he hails that as an advantage in ministry. But it is very rare for you to be a Pharisee, even though he was young. He, we would assume he would be married by the time he is there having uh, his full approval given to Stephen's stoning and martyrdom and ramping up the persecution of the church. You'd think he'd be married. So some people speculate that perhaps he's widowed. We don't know, but he is confirmed single after that in terms of being a fully focused minister of the gospel without being distracted by domestic life. Not that my domestic life is a distraction, but Paul's going to argue for singleness if you can do it. Even Jesus, let's start with Jesus. When Jesus talked about the solemnity of marriage and that this is something that man, woman, the remainder of your life, they said, wow, if that's the way it is, then maybe no one should be married. And Jesus goes, yeah, that's a good idea. If you can handle that, then do that. But most of us can't, admittedly. Cornelius is another very important uh, conversion that I think we need to highlight, letter D, in Acts chapter 10. Uh, He's a Roman centurion, and he's labeled in this passage as a God-fearer. Let me read it to you, Acts 10.2. He was a devout man who feared God. Now, that's kind of a technical category in the New Testament and the Old Testament, a God-fearer. That means he's someone that may not be a proselyte. A proselyte means he's fully engaged, going through all the rituals of engagement with Judaism. He's not that but he's a good guy who fears God and knows that the God of Israel is the right God. And he is, as it says in Acts 10 2, he's giving generously to the people and praying continually to God. So here's someone praying to the real God. He's just in need of the only access to the real God who is Christ in the New Testament. And he is a primed candidate to be the first foreign Gentile convert. And God went right for the edge of you want to talk about someone that's on the edge. Here he is visiting from Rome, dispatched in Caesarea, Caesarea Maritime, not Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea on the coast of the Mediterranean. Oh, which by the way, I was looking for this picture last time. I couldn't find it, but now I have it, so I thought I would share it. Some of you have been there. If not, you're going to go to Caesarea, and if you bring your drone, I guess you can get this shot when you're there, if you happen to be there at sunset, which you may not be, but I'll send you the picture if you want it. Caesarea is a uh, beautiful Roman port city that was built, and this is where he was stationed at Caesarea, which beautiful place, and it's a great place. When you visit it, you'll enjoy it, and you usually go there early on. I think Pete will probably, Pastor Pete will take you there early in all this. Cornelius, God fear, Roman centurion. Oh, God, yeah. God reached all the way out to Rome to bring a guy in, and not only is he a foreigner, he is a centurion, a centurion, you know, having a troop, 100 soldiers underneath him. I mean, this is this is the the enemy, if you will, of the independent mind minded zealous Jews and God's going, I'm going to save him and he'll be the first the first convert. So, stationed in Caesarea, he's prepped by a vision to send for Peter. So God says, all right, I'm going to visit you and I'm going to give you this message via the angelic appearance or however that panned out there in his room. And he ends up in Caesarea learning that he's going to be visited and Peter's going to come and send for Peter and bring him, bring him over. So Peter's in Joppa and he's being prepped at the same time to come to Caesarea. Joppa, by the way, when you fly into Tel Aviv, if you go to Israel, is the old city outside of Tel Aviv. It's actually one of the first places, if you can't sleep, when you get there before you check in. If, uh, you can take the little night walk to the old city of Joppa. And when you get there, you can imagine that Peter was there, not too far from Caesarea, and he is being prepped to come and convert this first 
outsider in the book of Acts, this Roman. The correlation to Old Testament dietary law fulfillment is made by the vision that he has in this sheet. (laughs) And it says he has this happen three times. Uh, Poor Peter, everything's in three. Denies Christ three times, has to go to John 21, and do you love me three times, and feed my sheep three times. And now he's being called to be this key figure in taking the gospel of the Jews to the Jew first. Now we're going to move on all the way to a Roman soldier, a leader of Roman soldiers, and we're going to break down this wall that's been there. The Old Testament ceremonial dietary laws were to restrict social intercourse in the kind of feasting and and stuff that you would have. I, I, I kind of see it as akin to you know going to the bar after work. And I'm like, Timothy, I don't drink alcohol, but that certainly makes it really easy for me to say, why would I ever be in a bar? I would never go to a bar. There's no reason for me to be in a bar. That is the kind of distinction that was made in Israel saying, you cannot eat all these things. Therefore, all the feasts that would be done in the ancient land of Canaan or any time from the founding of Israel all the way to through the Assyrian invasion and the Babylonians or the Babylonian captivity, wherever you are, you can't eat like everyone else. You can't socially engage like everyone else. And feasting was a major social connection. And so it was that God was keeping people apart, at least in terms of their frivolity and their partying and their all of that. And so he's saying now that's where those outsiders are. And one thing I'm going to do now is tear down this dietary law. Of course, they're not, it's not about any license to be a, a carouser or a drunkard, but what it is, is you need to see that those laws are tearing down this barrier between God's work in Israel and God's work in the foreign countries. And Jesus, by the way, in his teaching, it was, remember, remarked by, commented by the inspiration of, of God through Mark that when Jesus was talking about things not defiling us from the outside, he says, thus he declared all foods clean. So this was part of the transition from old covenant to new covenant. And the reality was no longer would we have those dietary restrictions. It was miraculously attested to the Jewish entourage. Remember we talked about the three barriers, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, those barriers being broken down. And as we get this first connection on the edge of Judea and Samaria, as we're moving into this foreign area, as we got Caesarea Maritime and we got the conversion, we saw the first act of this miraculous endowment of languages in Jerusalem. Now we have the second one in the book of Acts here in Acts chapter 10, where God now is allowing these foreigners to hear this language, and this language was given to them. They're able to speak now the entourage with Cornelius and his guys, being able to speak the language that was understood. You know, these guys were all trilingual, but the languages they were hearing were languages they shouldn't have known. And second, this is the secondary expansion of those concentric circles, and God is confirming that through the miraculous sign. And tongues, as we said last week, were a sign. That means it's a miracle. And so we have that second occurrence right here. Great story in Acts chapter 10. Now, in Acts chapter 13, everything shifts from Peter to Paul. Paul now, known as Saul before in his Hebrew context, is going to be known as Paul because God says, as he calls him, that he's going to be uh, an apostle to the Gentiles. He's going to be the leader of taking this message as an authorized sent one, an apostle, an emissary of Christ. He's going to take this message to the Gentiles. So he's starting these journeys and going hundreds and hundreds of miles. And in Acts chapter 13, we see this with two key leaders that set it up. Not the only guys traveling with him, but the two key 
missionary heads here are Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas, you remember, we meet first in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 4 because he sells that piece of property and then everyone sees that as such a great and wonderful, devoted, godly thing and Ananias and Sapphira decide they want that kind of publicity and end up lying about it and both of them die, as you know. But Barnabas is there seen in Acts chapter 4 as a, a godly man giving away money to promote the cause that was going on in the early church. Then, of course, he holds out his hand of encouragement to Saul in his conversion. Now he's going with Saul, Paul, and he's going to go out on his missionary journey. So he's going to leave from Antioch of Syria. Now this is where I want you to get your maps in the back of your Bible, if you have a printed Bible, or look up on your computer, if you have your computer, your iPad or whatever, and try and get to a a Bible map get past all the Old Testament stuff and the division of the land and even get through all the up, close-up maps of Israel and the work through the, the things that you see in Jesus' life and get to the place where you start to see the big map. It'll look something like this, where you get all of at least a good chunk of the Mediterranean Sea and the island of Cyprus. And we're going to start to track here now the first missionary journey in a very, very summarized form. But the reason I want you to get your maps out is so you can go back to this as we work through these things, as we go through the letters, and we sometimes refer back to them. You can get familiar with these, or even as you read the book of Acts next year, you can go back and track these as you read through Acts again. All right, so where does it all start? Here's Antioch of Syria. Now, the weird thing about Antioch is you hear that word a lot in, in the Bible. It's an important city, but you need to know how important it was even before it was important to Christianity. This was the third largest Roman outpost in the ancient world. This was a big, big, very important city of the Roman Empire. Of course, we're way out on the edge of the Roman Empire, but this was very important city. So this is where so many of these trips are launched from, and Paul makes his base there, and Christianity thrives there. Why there? Because in Jerusalem, remember all the persecution spread the Christians out. So there was a little bit of a relief here to be able to not have that heavy hand of persecution the way they had it from the Jews in Jerusalem. All right, so Antioch becomes the starting point. Now let's just you know, look at your map and find Pisidian Antioch, which is interesting because it's the two Antiochs. Here's the other Antioch. We talk about Antioch of Syria and Antioch of uh, Pisidia. So Pisidian Antioch is way up there. If you look above, uh, maybe you see a map that says Pamphylia, Pisidia, up north there, just west of Galatia, and you have that. That's the furthest distance. So that's as far as the first missionary journey goes. It's the shortest missionary journey. It's the most compact, but he's going here and establishing these churches. Uh, It's actually, Pisidia is in western Galatia. There's a big knob there, kind of a thumb that sticks out, and Pisidian Antioch is there. But an interesting stop on the island of Cyprus. You might remember the story of Patphas. There's a guy named Bar-Jesus. Do you remember that name, Bar-Jesus? Ilimus was a magician, he's called. And this is Raphael, if you're into Renaissance uh, artists, painting the picture because the, the text says... I think I copied it here. They'd gone through the island as far as Patphas. They came to a certain magician, uh, a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the pro-council, a man of intelligence, summoned Barnabas and Paul, and he sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that's what the name means, Elymas, he opposed them, seeking to turn the pro-council away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. Now notice this, man, as you're an apostle, this is a great power to have. 
You son of the devil, he says. You enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy. But here he goes. Stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. So here's a picture with one of the sketches as Raphael and all the artists like to do sketching out before they painted these pictures. This is one of a bigger picture if you're familiar with these shots of the Paul's journeys and the Renaissance painters. But nevertheless, he's being led away as a blind man uh, in this passage. So how great would it be in your apologetic training to be able to say, hey, stop, you're blind. And that's what happened here. And it made an impression. Anyway, there you go. Um, So here's some cities you will recognize, I'm sure, from your reading of the book of Acts, Iconium and uh, Lystra and Derby. These three we see Paul go back to uh, again and again, and important cities that are in Galatia, southern Galatia, that Paul wins to uh, Christ and sets up churches there. All right, you can see the track. You all found a map that has the first missionary journey on it. Sometimes the maps in the back of your Bible will put more than one missionary journey. It may have the same map for one, two, and three, or there's a lot we could say there. But when you read through that first missionary journey, which there's not a ton on, at least you can pick up all of those geographic references in the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. All right, now super important, really pivotal point in the early church, the Jerusalem Council, letter F. Jerusalem Council and letter F, really, what is that all about? Well, here's what it's about. What do we do about these Gentile converts? That's a good question. How do we deal with them? Now, there were some that said, well, you know, this has been a Jewish movement from the beginning. This is the Jewish Messiah. And even Jesus, and this is what might have confused them, kept all the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament from the very beginning. Mary brought him to the temple on the eighth day, the sacrifices, the circumcision, everything. When it came to anything that even he did in his ministry, even though they accused him of breaking ceremonial laws, he didn't break any ceremonial laws. He kept them. When a leper got healed, he'd say, go show yourself to the priest and bring the sacrifice to the priest. So now all of a sudden, you've got this strange transition where you had in chapter 10, you did have this very clear statement from Peter that, hey, we've got our first Roman centurion saved and what we've got, at least in the book of Acts, and what we've got now is the dietary laws have been turned around and we see that, what God has called clean, we're not going to call unclean anymore, which was really about the people, but it was all based on the ceremony of the food. What do we do with these ceremonies? And some said, well, we need to keep them. I mean, because this is the foundation of the Old Testament. I mean, the foundation of this new covenant is the Old Testament. Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch, and they go all the way down to Jerusalem for this council. Because all of this, obviously, they're under much more pressure in Jerusalem to kind of ignore what had gone on in Joppa and Caesarea. And they were like, we've got to go and deal with this. So Paul is one of the early heavyweights now, along with Barnabas, after this first missionary journey, to go and weigh in on this. So they have their first, they call it a council, right? A church council, because after this, you had plenty of debates going on in the church where they called all church councils. They become very important. Nicaea, for instance, critical in the fourth century in 325 AD. Nevertheless, the point here is Paul, Barnabas, and Peter all agree. Now that's a pretty big trio of powerhouses in the early church. There's a lot of people there, but those three agree, and they basically say this. How can we possibly put on them the ceremonial laws? Now, they're in Jerusalem, man. This is a very Jewish place, but they're saying we can't put the law on them because the whole point of the New Testament was from the tearing of the temple veil to what Christ has done, even in his teaching about what was coming in terms of the spirit, the fulfillment of the, of the Old Testament laws. It seems like the ceremonial laws are no longer necessary. Yet, they said, we should have sensitivities. 
sensitivities to people that are going to be very offended by this. Now, we live in a day when that's all that matters. That's the, the golden rule. And I'm not talking about someone having their feelings hurt. I mean the kind of offense in a biblical sense. The word offense in the Old Testament, or the New Testament even, was to stumble. And that means you're causing me to fall into some kind of conscience terrorizing thing. In other words, I am in my own conscience at war within myself because of what your freedom has now done. So that series I did in Romans 14 is helpful, I think, to think through how we even live today with sensitivities that weren't on the table in the first century because no one cares that I'm eating a bacon omelet in the morning or whatever. Sounds really good right now, but the bacon, you don't care about that. You have no interest in that. That's not an issue. Or the, the days of our worship. It takes a very rare person to say they care about any of that. And yet we have our own issues. But for them, it was like, okay, sensitivities, we're going to insist upon that. That does not mean that these are part of your salvation. This means that as a Christian, you need to be sensitive to that. And here was the conclusion. Here's what they said. Verses 28 and 29. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. So we're saying, we think this is God's will now for the people of God in the first century. That you have no greater burden than these requirements. What is it? That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols. Now, Paul's going to go to Corinth. This is in Jerusalem. But he's going to go to Corinth later and, and, and say to them, he's going to write to Corinth, and he's going to say, listen, in the meat market, what does it matter? What, you know, there is no God for us but one. The earth is the Lord, all that it contains, quoting the Psalms. There are a lot of gods to them. There's no God but one for us. So these things don't matter. And then even then he starts to deal with sensitivities. But the sensitivities there are different than they are here in Jerusalem. So he says, these converts, we, don't, we, want, you, we want you to stay away from that. Just no BLTs around your Jewish brothers. And let's not unnecessarily stumble these people's consciences. And from blood, right? That was a big deal in the Old Testament, and from what has been strangled, which is part of that issue of blood within an animal that is eaten, and from sexual immorality, which the debate there is how that looks like a moral law that's always going to be in place, and it absolutely is. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, it is always godly, Old Testament, intertestamental, New Testament, and today about your morality. That's why some people take this phrase and they go back to the ceremonial laws and they start saying, well, there are some distinctions, even as we have today in our land, between who you can marry and how close of a relative you could marry. And some people think this is part of what's being said here, what's considered moral or immoral based on the law in Leviticus. And I remember having a couple come to me. I don't think they're here anymore, so I can say this. It was many years ago. They had come from a state where they couldn't marry their second cousin. Is that right? Can you marry your first cousin in California? No one knows. Are you married to your first cousin? No one's married. No one really wants to marry their first cousin in California, but... Anyway, the point is the laws are different in each state. Now, there's a good pastoral counseling question. I, you know, I didn't learn in seminary or Bible school, but you, you have to think through these kinds of things. And there's distinctions even among states as to who, how close of a relative. Anyway, some people think that's what we're dealing with. If we're not dealing with that, of course, that's one that's always going to be applicable as opposed to meat sacrifice to idols, which Paul says in other contexts doesn't have any bearing. So we have to define what that means in its context. Anyway, if you keep yourself from these, you will do well, farewell. So we've got those things, those four things. Things polluted from idols, sexual immorality, which perhaps close relative marriages, a la Leviticus 18, what's been strangled, and from blood, which really are one and the same, uh, or at least have a bearing on one another. That was the conclusion of the Jerusalem Council, which is basically, what do we do with the Gentile Christians? Let's just say none of that matters in salvation, but be sensitive to stumbling your Jewish brothers. That's the briefest 
summation of the Jerusalem Council possible. Then Paul goes on a second missionary journey. And you remember this story. Paul and Barnabas disagree greatly about John Mark. Remember when I said they went on their first journey, it wasn't just Paul and Barnabas, but those were the key principal preachers. Well, John Mark went with them as kind of an understudy, an intern, whatever you want to call it, a staff member, but they go off and then he abandons them for some reason. We've already talked about this when we looked at the gospel of Mark, but they disagree. And you remember the story from Acts chapter 15. After some days, Paul says to Barnabas, let us return to the brothers. This is missionary journey number two, starting in chapter 15 to every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord. Let's see how they are. We need to build them up. But Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them at Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So Paul sees this as a serious problem, which again we know as we studied in Mark, Mark, John Mark recovered from. Nevertheless, there arose such a sharp disagreement about personnel among these two that they separated from one another. Barnabas took Mark with him and they sailed away to Cyprus, the island there where they'd run into the bar Jesus last time they were there. But Paul chose Silas and he said, forget it. I'm not going to go that way. That's why missionary journey number two doesn't follow the same pattern. Why? Because Barnabas went that way and he goes, I'm not going that way. I'm not going with him. I'm not going with John Mark. I'm going to go up north. And he departed having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. So both of them leave with the favor of the church, but they go in two different directions. So they disagreed about John Mark and the narrative follows Paul, not Barnabas. Luke, remember, is traveling with Paul. In chapter 16, we start getting all those we passages, we, 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 that Luke, Dr. Luke is with Mark. So picture this, if you will, on your map. This is a little bigger map. Maybe missionary journey number two looks something like this. It starts now in Antioch, and you see we don't sail to Cyprus, which is exactly where Paul would have gone, because he says, I want to go back to visit the churches that we won converts in, and yet he doesn't go there. Why? He goes a different direction because of the, the division with Barnabas. So we start in Antioch, but we go up north. Well, where are we going? Well, we got to get here because these are important cities. Lystra, Iconium, Derby. We go through all of those cities. Then we get to Pisidian Antioch. Now, remember, that was the furthest away that we could get before. But he goes on, as it says in Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 10, they went through the region of Phrygia, Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So they'd come up to Messiah. They attempted to go to Bithynia. The Spirit of the Lord did not allow them. How did that work? I'm not sure. Maybe it was circumstances. They were interpreting as God's will providentially. Nevertheless, they went down to Troas. In the vision, this here's Troas way over here. So they made their way all around here. And you're kind of tracing the lines and the arrows to Troas. When they got to Troas, there on the coast, they had this thing we call the Macedonian call. There was this vision in the night that Paul had. Now, this is, gets weird, but notice how he responds to this. He has this, this vision that says, come over and help us in Macedonia. When Paul had seen the vision, he sought to go to, to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them, which I always think is interesting. He sees this, and he doesn't say, well, God told us. No, he had to decipher this, deduce this, and conclude this. All of it made sense in the providence of God and the door that it opened. And this prophet and apostle was given uh, insight through this. But nevertheless, there was a lot of rationality given to this vision in Troas. So off he goes. You see Macedonia over here? He's in Troas. He gets the call. And now he's going to cross the Aegean Sea. And he's going to go to this city of Philippi. Philippi is where Lydia is converted. Remember the seller of purple? There was the slave girl there too. Puts them in jail. There's a GT2 to get Paul out of the jail. We compared the jailbreak of Peter, remember that, early in the book, to the jailbreak of Paul. Well, that's where it all happens in Philippi. The convert of the Philippian jailer, he's about to kill himself. Paul says, no, don't do that. If you go on the footsteps of Paul trip, if you've been there with us, you can go to all these cities. We've been to all these cities on our compass tours. And then he moves on 
to Thessalonica. And you know that city, of course, Thessalonica. You see it there from the, uh, the book, of course. A lot of converts, but also persecution. Remember when he writes Thessalonians, he reminds them of how much persecution he had. Now look here. Oh, I should have put Berea. But Berea is right underneath it. I could have put a different box, but it's right underneath it. Berea, remember, were more, more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. Why? Because they were such eager learners. They received the word just with excitement and a welcoming spirit, and yet they searched the scriptures daily. That's why bookstores, Christian bookstores, are often called Berean Christian bookstores, that chain of bookstores. Why? Because, you know, if you're really into studying the word, you come to their bookstore and buy their commentaries. The sad thing is a lot of them didn't have many commentaries or Bible dictionaries. It's just a lot of fluff and bestsellers. We've got a good bookstore. Have you been to our bookstore? Debbie Hackett does a great job with our bookstore, and you need to get in our bookstore and buy more books. And it's coming soon. If Compass 2020 goes the way it ought to go, we're going to get a much better bookstore. You're going to walk out into the lobby out here and see a nice big bookstore, places to sit down and read, more books, better books. It's going to be awesome. Well, not better books, but more more books, more good books there. All right, Berea. After that, we go down to Athens, which is the, the scene of the Areopagus. They call it Mars Hill. There is a hill there called Mars Hill. If you go in the footsteps of Paul Tripp, you'll go there, but it's really not on that hill, but near the hill, you had the meeting of the Areopagus, which were the professors, the philosophers of Athens. That was the center of great learning, of course. And Paul stands there and gives a defense of Christianity and a great sermon. It's a great sermon because we finally are moving away from these synagogues in these cities to a place where you have a full-blown secular audience. And he starts with Genesis and starts to build the case for Christianity from the Old Testament, which is a great model of our evangelism, starting at Genesis, not with Matthew, when you're talking to people in our culture. All right, after Athens, we get to, to Corinth. You see that there in Corinth, which I often talk about as the Orange County of the ancient world. It's on the trade routes right there. If you look at the sea where it's situated, it's a perfect spot. A lot of money went through there. People were well off, but he got a lot of opposition from the Jews, of course, and he said that. The picture of the Bema seat came from there in Corinth. If you go visit it, there are ruins there with the Bema seat. Then he goes and sails across the Aegean Sea to Ephesus, and it's a very short stop on this second missionary journey. He's going to spend a lot longer there on his third missionary journey, and then, of course, he makes his way back to Caesarea, and that's where things started with Cornelius in Acts chapter 9. That was the second missionary journey in warp speed. Did you feel how quickly we were going through that? Third missionary journey. Let's go to number three, letter H, the third missionary journey. Now get your map out and take a look at this. After Paul spends some time in Antioch, Paul leaves again. He's a missionary at heart. I want to get out there to these places, expand the gospel. That's what Christ has called us to do. So look back at your map. We're starting again in Antioch. Paul comes up from Caesarea to Antioch, and he is going to now start on his trip. And again, he follows not the Barnabas path. He follows the path he took on the last trip, and he goes through his hometown. Do you see Tarsus there? Which, by the way, is, you know, I I meant to point that out before. I don't know if it was on my other map. He goes through a very familiar place. He revisits all of these cities here and all this place in Galatia. He settles then in, finally, in the Ephesus here, which is a great city not far from the port. If you've been to Ephesus on our trip or if you go there, it's some of the best amazing ruins that have been all uncovered and put in place. And it's it's a great, great city with the Roman architecture. It's a neat archaeological site. Apollos is there in Ephesus. Remember in Acts chapter 18, he's a native of Alexandria. He comes to Ephesus. He's an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He's been instructed in the way of the Lord. He's fervent in the spirit. He taught and spoke accurately the things regarding Jesus. He becomes a key player. Paul refers to when he writes back to the Corinthians, his fame is broad and wide. And Paul has a 
obviously a very positive effect on him, moving him in his theology forward and the deficiencies that he had. The sons of Sceva, remember the seven sons of Sceva takes place here, that really weird set of Jewish exorcists, which came from a lot of the intertestamental writings. There was a lot of things written in between the Testaments in the Old Testament pseudepigrapha and the Old Testament apocrypha, we call it. Two different things, not the New Testament apocrypha. The point is, these guys were going through these incantations and they tried to use the name of Jesus as some rabbit's foot and, of course, they got worked over because of that. So he spends two and a half to three years here in Ephesus. This was his longest stint in any city. Comes a place where he writes too. He goes up to Troas up here. This is the story of Eutychus. Remember, Eutychus is up in the upper deck listening to the preaching, and he goes on too long, as sometimes I do here, only you're not sitting on the ledge of a window. If you were, it's dangerous. You should not do that, because when you fall asleep, you might die, and I'm not an apostle, so you might not wake up. Troas. Then Paul makes a return trip to all these churches in Macedonia and in Greece. Paul then to Miletus gives his farewell speech here as he goes through that. There's a lot of lines there you can follow. But then to Miletus where he gives that great farewell speech to the pastors of Ephesus. I refer to that all the time and it's filled with great, it's just a great passage. And But it doesn't take place in Ephesus, but there before he sails off from Miletus. Then he makes his way back to Israel and Jerusalem. And that is his third missionary journey in hyperdrive, turbo speed. There is one more trip. Some people even call it a fourth missionary journey because he does do missions work, but he's in chains at this point, at least early on in this trip, as a prisoner. So let's, most people would call it something, what I call it, the Paul's Road to Rome. Let's just call it that. Before he goes, he's received by those leaders in Jerusalem, which is great. The Jews oppose him. In, I mean, they're out to kill him in Jerusalem. This would be his fourth trip he's about to go on. This one's coerced, though. Uh, he preaches and ends up being flogged. This is his summary, as I can give you, of Acts 21 and following. He's put on trial, and he's sent to Caesarea. Caesarea, the beautiful port city there that I showed you the picture of. This is where he's held in, as a prisoner, and he is held, and he has his hearing by Felix and Festus and a King Agrippa, Herod the Great's great-grandson. And then he gets put on a ship because he appeals to Caesar. Remember that? And off he goes to Rome in the ship. Now, there's a lot of interesting things here, and there's so much detail here, so many uh, words and specific technical phrases and, and descriptions of the sea, and then the, obviously the dramatic uh, shipwreck with, I mean, you can imagine how this was. It was amazing, but it's a great dramatic story of Paul in the middle of all that, proving that he is connected with God in a way that builds the respect of those on the ship. I think it had something to do even with how he was probably treated when he got to Rome. Nevertheless, he makes his way to Rome after the shipwreck and a lot of drama in those chapters, as you know, you've read it, and he gets put under house arrest in Rome while he awaits trial. And of course, you might remember, as we tried to date the book of Acts, that this took at least two years. The docket must have been full for Herod, and he's waiting to go before Caesar. The docket was was busy, I suppose. He's waiting a long time. But don't picture him as he was in stocks and chains in the basement of Philippi. In Philippi, in the prison, he's in a dank, dark dungeon with Silas, and he's he's certainly not going to be writing any books. But here, you need to envision him as having freedom. He's sharing the gospel with the Praetorian Guard. The Romans are getting saved that are around him. But yeah, he's not free to go. He can't travel out of Rome. He's under house arrest, we would say. But he's got freedom. He's writing letters from here. And he's got relative, at least short-leashed freedom 
in Rome. And there's the end of the book of Acts. Let's talk about the letters of the New Testament. The letters of the New Testament. Of course, these are all written on papyrus. I decided to put P49 up here. This is the actual one I've held in my hands between two little panes of glass at Yale University in my studies. This is a late 200s AD papyrus purchased in Cairo. This particular section of it, the backside of it, this is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 32 through 513. And these are all over, all over the world. In libraries, several in Ann Arbor, Michigan, some in Yale University, a ton overseas in Dublin and museums, British museums, universities in, in Europe, most of them are over there. But this is, this is amazing stuff. I remember the university trip I took when I was at the Yale University Library of Antiquities, and I was able to fill out some applications and get a chance to hold these in my hand in the Antiquities Library. And on that same trip, I went to see the, we went to D.C., and I got to see the Declaration of Independence, which was just over 200 years old. And that was guarded by armed guards in this beautifully uh, secured case with all the humidity and all that. And here I was in the basement of the Yale University with a 200 AD, almost 2,000 year old writings of the, of the scriptures. And I could have busted it over my knee and ate it. And it's just the values. I mean, I'm all for the constitution and the declaration of independence and all the rest. The Magna Carta is fantastic, but I'm just telling you, it was quite a uh, study in contrasts. Anyway, New Testament letters. I want you to think about them because you picture, for instance, this piece of papyrus, which by the way, the average papyrus, like the one you see here, is about, not really not much difference, about nine inches by 11 inches. I mean, you basically have a, like a sheet of paper, like your worksheet. That's the average papyrus size of the ancient world. So I just want to tell you that the average non-biblical letter, if you were to write a letter on a papyrus, the ones that we found throughout the ancient world, mostly in arid places in the south of Jerusalem and northern Africa, uh, are usually 90 to 200 words. So if the average piece of papyrus is 9 inches by 11 inches, or about a standard 8.5 by 11 piece of paper, it'll fit in the average-sized script of the ancient world, about 250 words on a piece of paper. The average letter, if it's 200 words, you know that most things that we discover from antiquity, most things at least, of the average correspondence is about one piece of papyrus. That is what we normally have. Well, New Testament's far different. The average New Testament letter is 2,140 words. It's, of course, all in Greek. We're counting Greek New Testament words. The letters that are written are 2,140 words. Is that not clear? All I'm trying to say is if you go through antiquity and look at letters that are written from one group to another or one person to another, they're one-pagers, most of them, on average. Well, the New Testament, they're massive compared to that because there's a lot to say and it's super-duper important. So this created, even in the way that we talk about it in in the ancient world, a new word. It's not a new word, really, but it kind of became associated and coined with the New Testament writings. They use the word epistle. So this new literary epistle, which literally means in Greek, a compound word, epistello, which is to uh, to send upon, to publish, like it, as in the news, to publish something that was more important, like a, a history or something, you know, weighty. That epistolatory literature is something that the New Testament kind of popularized. At least it became known for that. And so all we're saying is when it comes to ancient manuscripts, these are, these are long. Unless we're talking about the Iliad or the Odyssey or something like that from poetic works or works of fiction or even histories of the Peloponnesian Wars or something like that. But if you're talking about letters, and these are letters, right? We call them New Testament letters. They're a lot longer than the average letter. And that's why even the word epistle, at least in the vernacular of how we talk, we say epistle, we're talking about something that's longer than your average letter. The form. 
if you read through the New Testament many times, as most of you have, you find it's very, very standard. Most of this is almost repetitively standard in terms of form. You have an introductory greeting, which identifies the sender and the receiver, the recipient, which is helpful. You get a salutation that comes after that, but that's really good. Like we usually send, we start our letters with the, with the recipient at the top, and then we sign our stuff at the bottom, and we have our name and our email address and phone number or whatever. We used to have our fax number and our, our street address at the bottom. Well, theirs is all up at the top. Name, sender, recipient, and the salutation, some kind of greeting. In the ancient world, they'd say it'd be a wish, and we wish you this, we wish you that. And, uh, and of course, that was replaced, certainly with the Apostle Paul, they would say grace to you, or grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Those kinds of salutations were common in the ancient world. Then there was the main body of the letter, or in this case, we'll call it an epistle from now on. There's often a doctrine or theology slash practical segment. In other words, that's pretty common. And you see that very clearly in books like Ephesians or Colossians, that kind of distinction, even in Galatians, which is not as firmly distinct, but you see it there. A doctrinal section, a more philosophical section, a theological section, I should call it, and then a practical application section. And then you have the farewell at the end of those books. Now, the problem for us as preachers, and I'll just let you in on our little world here, is that we are here trying to produce churches that are expository preaching churches, which means that we get up and we go line by line and verse by verse through Bible books. And it's going to take a lot of time to do that. If we do it right, do it carefully, glean all the information that we should out of it. So you've got to think about the fact that what we're doing on a Sunday moves a lot, lot slower. And I'm not telling you anything you don't know. moves a lot, lot slower than it would if you were to take that letter as it was originally intended and absorb it the way that it was intended. Let me put it this way. When you think about a book that has, for instance, like the book of Ephesians, three chapters of doctrinal information and three chapters of practical information. You have the theology and then you have the you have the practice. Put it into practice. Think about all this. You know, everything works after the counsel of his will, and you were chosen in him before the foundation of the world in the first chapter, and then we're getting into the family codes and the marriage things, and love your wife as you love yourself, all that. So the distinction of those is, is radically distinctive. The way that we put it in, in analyzing and interpreting is we say there's a lot in the first half of the book that is indicative, and indicative, grammatical indicative means here's some stuff you need to know. It's this is the way things are. Here's the truth of something, indicative. And then grammatically, there are imperatives, which are commands. Do this, do this, do this. So you got a lot of know this in the first part of the book, and you got a lot of do this in the second part of the book. Now, if you remember how these indicative truths were given, they were given in a format where it was commanded that you stand up in church and you read it to the church. And of course, we read scripture on the screen and we do that in church, but that of course, turned into what's often going on in the Old Testament, and that is we read it, then we explain it, we give it meaning, as Ezra did in the Old Testament, and we elucidate on it, we illustrate it, and we try to help you apply it. But if you've got books that are broken down in this New Testament format of salutation and greeting, and then the actual body of it, and it's broken down into indicatives, here's the stuff you ought to know, and imperatives, here's the stuff you ought to do, guys started to create a whole kind of preaching that was based on the first half of these epistles. And they said, well, we're going to get engaged in this thing called doctrinal preaching. And so for them, that just meant, let's just focus on our indicatives. This is what you ought to know. You ought to know. You ought to know. All right. We've gotten through that, that verse. Amen. Sing the hymn. Go home. Come back next week. Hey, let's go through another passage here in the first chapter of Ephesians. And it's no, 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 no. As in K-N-O-W. Know this, know this, know this. And then we're done. We sing, sing a hymn, pray a prayer. We leave, go home. They then began to develop a kind of preaching they would call doctrinal 
preaching, which I'm just trying to say, and I wrote my doctoral dissertation on this, that that doesn't really make sense, even if you just think of how the books are written. It takes 19 minutes to sit down and read out loud in Greek the Greek letter to the Ephesians. 19 minutes. So think about that. Eight minutes, you're dealing with indicatives, and then within the ninth minute, you're already now talking about imperatives. All I'm saying is you can't get through a single 20-minute section in in the early church without getting to application and practicality. And that's why I'm all for preaching doctrine, but I want to make sure that we don't fall into a new category and say, hey, I'm going to preach for a year in my church, the first half of the book of Ephesians, the first half of the book of Colossians, and never get to application. Because the word was given initially through these epistles to be read, and it's always going to move from indicative to imperative. And you ought to expect that. And of course, if you go here, you're going to hear that from me, no matter if we're in a doctrinal section of the scripture, particularly in the epistles where you have it piled up, but it's piled up only for eight minutes, say in one of these long books. It's one of the longer epistles, at least the prison epistles in uh, Ephesians. Does that, I don't know if that's worth it or not, but I think it's helpful to, to see that. Then there's the farewell. Did I already give you that? Intro, main body, farewell. Something that may be of interest to you, and I don't want it to be unsettling to you in any way, is to think about the, the secretaries, the secretaries. They're known as amanuensis, amanuenses, or a singular, amanuensis. If I were your amanuensis, see, then what I am is a, literally what this means through Latin, that's where we get the word, it means a writing slave. So if your wife keeps telling you, put ketchup on the list, put, you know, put hot dogs on the list, we, you know, we, we need toilet paper, put that on the list. You might cry, I'm not your amanuensis, you know, I'm not your writing slave, which I wouldn't suggest. My marital counseling, you would be, honey, your wish is my command, I'm, I'm your loving, happy amanuensis. Anyway, it's a great word, and I think you should use it more in your homes, and it's the word amanuensis. All it means is that someone is taking down dictation for someone else. And we see this in the New Testament. For instance, look at Romans chapter 16. Paul, 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 Paul. He starts it. He's all about I, 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 I. I'm grieving. Chapter 9, over people that are lost. My hope and desire for them to be saved. If I could trade my salvation for them, I would do it. I, 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 I. And then we get to the end of the book, and it says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Huh? What? Who? Who's that? Is that his pen net? What are you talking about? That's his amanuensis. See? The amanuensis is someone who's taking the dictation. And of course, by the time you read chapter 16 of Romans, everyone and his mother is named in the church of Rome. And the guys he's sending greetings from, and Tertius says, I, I, I want to be in this thing. So I, I'm going to greet you too. And Paul lets him put his own greeting in the book, an amanuensis. Now, there's a lot of interesting statements, and I could list a bunch of them for you in the New Testament. Uh, like Colossians 4, 18, Philemon chapter, uh, verse 19, 2 Thessalonians three seventeen, But here's a good example. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 21. At the end of the book, you see these phrases. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Has that ever been of interest to you? Like, well, okay. <laughs> you know, like, it's like me at the end of the sermon. I, Mike, have been preaching this sermon to you. Brought to you by Mike. I mean, it would be, make no sense. Of course. This is... Now, some people, I think, wrongly think, well, this means that he's just saying, I'm not using the manuensis. Or it means, as you see in Galatians, for instance, and I guess I should have written that one down, Galatians 6.11, when he says at the end of the book, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand? I don't think that was the whole book. I think he's putting his signature on it and, and picking up the actual pen and writing that down. And again, you can debate that. Nevertheless, I put a couple pictures up of, a man, of, of amanuenses, and Paul certainly had an amanuensis clearly in Romans chapter 16, verse 22. So God, just like we might have Luke writing for for Paul, 
the connections that we see as God records this, the governing and superintendence of his, we would call inspiration, his God-breathed governance of these things certainly included an amanuensis in the New Testament, if not in some of the Old Testament. But clear, there's a clear window in the New Testament. So, writing slave. I don't think they were slaves. It's about Paul. I don't think he had slaves doing it, but he had certainly secretaries. Let's call them that. The order. Paul's epistles. If you look through the New Testament, after we get through the Gospels and Acts, what you're going to find is Paul's epistles come first. And first we have his letters to the churches, from largest to smallest, which I think I said in the opening week of our series, seven weeks ago. Then we have his books from people, largest to smallest. In other words, people starts with Timothy and goes to Philemon. So Timothy has 1,591 Greek words, Philemon 335 words. Churches, Romans 7,011, 7,111 words. And then the churches, the last church is what? Second Thessalonians 823 words. They're all named in your Bible by the recipient. Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Those are all the recipients of the book. Then we have the general epistles. So you've got two sections here of epistles. The general epistles are named no longer by the recipient. Now they're named by the author, except for the first one. The first one is named by the recipient only because we don't know the author, as we'll talk about when we get to the book of Hebrews. You may have been taught in your church that you grew up in that it's Paul. We'll talk about that. But those are, including Hebrews, which is the only exception to this, named by the recipient, named by the recipient and not the author. They're all largest to smallest. Hebrews has got 4,000 952 words, all the way down to Jude, which has only 461 words, which I should say is grouped by author. In other words, that's not the smallest book. The smallest book is 3 John, which only has 219 words, but because we keep Peter together and John together. First and second Peter go together. First, second, third John go together. Jude is the smallest one by author, if you follow what I'm saying there. But we go from largest to smallest, okay? In our study, and I, you know, just had to make a decision on this. I've decided from this point on to do everything chronologically So because it works out nicely. So let's fill in our chart that I have for you here and let's think this will be, this, this will help us figure out how we're going to do the rest of this series if we ever make it through the rest of this series. So let's just put these down by date. Ready? Let's start with this one, Galatians. Now I'm giving you the date that I have settled on. You may look in your Bible or your study Bible and you may have some differences. Only a few of them will have a radical difference because there's two theories on some of these. But let's start with this one. Galatians. Okay, these are all the dates, right? A.D. Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord, 48. Next one, 1 Thessalonians, 51. 2 Thessalonians, probably in the same year, 51. 1 Corinthians, 54. 2 Corinthians, 55. Romans, 56. Ephesians, 61. Colossians, 61. You'll see why. Philemon, 61. Philippians, 62. First Timothy, 63. Titus, 63. Second Timothy, 64. Now the left-hand column, I'm just trying to save you space with this chart here. The left-hand column, these are all Paul's epistles. Now I'm listing them for you, not the way your Bible listens. That's called the canonical order. I'm not talking about the canonical order. I'm talking about the chronological order. And the chronological order, we can divide this up into the categories of the early letters of the Apostle Paul, the first three. These are called the major epistles of the Apostle Paul. You may not hear those too often, but you'll certainly hear the next two categories much more often. The next one are the prison epistles of the Apostle Paul, as Paul sits in prison. And the last one are the pastoral epistles of the Apostle Paul. And since they're the only pastoral epistles, 
They're just called the pastoral epistles. Early, major, prison, pastoral. Now, we could have stacked this all, but for the sake of space, I didn't. So let's go to the next one here, James. And you see the little line that I've drawn here. This could go above Galatians. And this is my conclusion. Again, this one is debated, put in two different places. But I'm going to argue for 45 AD, AD 45. The next book, Hebrews. Now, again, I'm going to go down at the bottom here. It just works nicely this way. Paul's writing all in the middle here. Hebrews 65. 1 Peter 65. 2 Peter 67. Jude 75. 1 John 85. 2 John 90. 3 John 90. Revelation 95. Green, this section on the screen, it's green at least. We call these the general epistles, of course. We're going to deal with Revelation at the end of our study, Lord willing. That's prophecy. Prophecy. It's apocalyptic prophecy. Symbolic imagery of God showing, as I like to say, a multimedia presentation of something in this case that's not only in heaven, verses chapters 4 and 5, but in the future, chapters 5 through 20, 20, 22, 21 and 22. All right. With the time we have left, let's talk about James. The author, James. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, done, right? Well, no. There are several James in the New Testament. You know this. And since he doesn't tell us anything except that he's a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're thinking he's one of the prominent ones. Well, there's two prominent ones. There's James the Apostle, the brother of John. He walked with Jesus, one of the 12. That's one. The other one is James, the half-brother of Christ. So there's two major James. The problem so often when we read the book of Acts, we see the word James and we don't recognize we have two different James going on there. And if you read it quickly, you don't see that Luke goes to pretty great lengths to show you the transition from the one to the other and to distinguish the two with short little phrases. So we'll want to pay attention to that. But let's talk about James, the half brother of Christ. Call him the half brother, of course, because Jesus had no earthly father. James 13.55 is not First, he says, son of the carpenter, Joseph, mother called Mary, are not his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas among us? And the parallel passage in his sisters also. So he has at least two sisters and four brothers that are named. Of course, he's the oldest, uh, as we know from the story. And James is the second born. They list them in chronological order, just like you probably did with your children or do with your children. Well, let's think this through. If those are our options, let's figure this one out. In Acts chapter 12, James the apostle is killed. He's martyred. Not the first martyr. The first martyr is Stephen. But we have James martyred here as the church persecution ramps up. Look at how it's stated, Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, and he killed James. Now, he doesn't just say James, because if you just said James, you would think James the apostle, and he wants you to think James the apostle. But there's another important James throughout the book of Acts, so he's going to make it clear, James the brother of John. And he says it that way. He doesn't say James the apostle, because the other one's going to be described in a way that's also very helpful. James, the half-brother of Christ, is how I have named him. But that's the important connection and distinction. James, the apostle. James, the half-brother of Christ. I should have given this a different heading of some kind. But all I want to show you is a couple things about him. Number one, John chapter 7 said, in the middle of Christ's ministry, for not even his brothers believed him. We have four brothers named, adult brothers, and all four of those brothers are here under this heading. They don't trust in him. They don't believe in him. 
Or let's go even further. Mark chapter 3, verse 24. And though this doesn't specifically say his brothers, they're clearly involved in this conversation. Are they all there? I don't know. I assume the oldest is because his mother is there. Nevertheless, it says when his family heard of this, what did they hear of? That he's always preaching. He's always doing this ministry. He's healing these people or so they think that's the word on the street. And he has no time even to eat. He's working himself into the ground. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. So this is a pretty violent non-believing response, an antagonistic response to Christ. So James, the half-brother of Christ, wasn't a believer, at least at this point. Now, the prominence of James, as after this, we start to see a change that is hinted to historically as it's looked back, as Paul writes to Corinth, after the resurrection. Look at this passage, 1 Corinthians 15, 7, and he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Okay, that makes no sense if we're talking about James, the brother of John. If you ever have a statement about anyone being singled out, it might be Peter and the rest of the apostles, not James. So we're not talking about James here. We must be talking about James the apostle, the half-brother in 1 Corinthians 15. Okay, this is setting up the next passage here. James the apostle is martyred in Acts chapter 12 too. Here's the next point is what I'm trying to say. Acts chapter 12. And Peter, that's the context here in Acts 12, says, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Okay, remember he got martyred, James, the brother of John, in Acts 12, 2, the apostle. Now, it says later in that very same chapter, James is now some prominent person, and when we get out of that jail situation, he's supposed to go and tell James and the brothers. Galatians 1, 19, when he's speaking of his early con- his conversion and his early days after his conversion, he says in Galatians 1, 19, after his desert, desert experience, Paul says, but I saw none other than, I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now that's interesting. We're not talking any longer about James, the brother of John. We're talking about James, the Lord's brother. We would say half brother, but we get the, we get the idea. So James, the half brother of Christ has become very prominent in that he is unbelieving in the middle of his ministry, but it seems like Christ goes and appears to him and he apparently is converted by the time we're in Acts, Acts chapter 12, and James the apostle dies. Well, James, the brother of Christ, becomes a very prominent figure, even listed with the apostles in that passage. Early church tradition, origin, early 200s, said that uh, James wrote, that James, the brother of Christ, wrote the book of James. Eusebius, 100 years later, said the same thing. James, the brother of Christ. And we could go on. The early church consistently attributes the epistle of James to the brother of Christ and not James, the apostle. So that's helpful. James, that's going to be our conclusion. It's been the conclusion of the church. It makes a lot of sense and it'll help us date the book. James, date, letter B. The address he hints. Let's start with this. James writes his letter and he says in the first verse to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Okay, well, we know this. It's talking about the 12 tribes. That sounds pretty Jewish. That is very Jewish because we're talking about Jewish people here. There's a Jewish audience. Well, we're looking for when this would even make sense that you'd be writing Christians about Christ. This book's about Christ. It's about the Christian life. It's about Christian wisdom. How in the world would you write this to the 12 tribes? Well, because that was what we had prior to chapter 9 and, and, and 13 of Acts. So this is the pre-Gentile explosion of the church. It's the early focus of the book of Acts. And of course, they're said to be in the dispersion. They're being dispersed. Well, why were they dispersed? Well, Acts chapter 8 verse 1 says, There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered or dispersed throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. They stayed in Jerusalem. 
But Christians were spread out, a lot of them up to Syria and, and to Antioch. So the writing is to the Jews. That puts this early. After the dispersion, that gives us some sense of when it is after the Jewish Christians start to, to split in different directions. Now, we're assuming this is pre-Acts 15, because in Acts 15, we have the Jerusalem Council, when a lot of the things that you would think, as James was a key player in this, he would reference this. Take a look at Acts 15, verses 13 and 14. After being finished, and after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name, and he goes on to make the case. So James is a key heavyweight in this meeting. Remember, James the apostle is dead, but what we have now is James being very involved in all this, and we don't have any of that sense. Well, the Jerusalem Council was in 50 AD. So when the church was still Jewish, if you will, before the explosion of the Gentiles, starting with Cornelius and following, when we had to deal with all the stuff that was going on in the Jerusalem Council, because everyone in the Gentile world starting to get saved with the same spirit that the Jews got, you would think it's got to be before the Jerusalem Council, at least five years before the Jerusalem Council. Now, James the Apostle was killed somewhere in the early 40s, probably 43 or 44. So that brings the letter close to his life, but we're assuming this is before the Jerusalem Council, before the Gentile explosion of the church in the way that would affect James's statement, we would think. So we're going to date it at 45, AD 45. Recipients, obviously, they're dispersed because they're being persecuted. So they're displaced Jewish Christians, and they're dispersed because of their persecution. And again, just to put one interesting thing out there about the Jewish nature of this book, James 2.2 talks about their assembly. It says, if a man wearing gold ring and fine clothes comes into your, your assembly. There's a couple of words you could use for assembly here. The word that we're used to seeing, usually translated church, but also means assembly, is the word ecclesia. He doesn't use the word ecclesia. He uses the word synagogue, which is the word synagogue. And um, anyway clearly about the Jewish people dispersed. It's a circulating letter because it's to all the dispersed Jews. However far it went, it went far. It got all the way to us. But the point is, these are the folks that have been sent out from the church being squeezed by the governmental authorities in the early part of the book of Acts. What's the purpose of the book? Just to summarize, it's to confront practical sins in the camp, even as the one I just said, coming to the assembly, I treat rich people better than I treat poor people, that's not right, things like that. Very practical sins, practical sins of our, our mouth, the things we see. There's a lot of demands in this book for Christians to live godly lives, be godly people. So much of it circles around wisdom, what is godly wisdom all about? So that's defined for us in some very practical terms, not just favoritism and not just your tongue, but how we operate, how we work, the divisions within our church that should be healed and fixed. So to make it as simple and and summarized as possible, I'll just leave you with those three at the risk of missing other important themes. But that seems to be the purpose, at least in general terms. Simplified outline, I try to keep this as simple as possible. The first 18 verses about trials. You can even see the overlap in that chapter about faith. Those trials are supposed to produce something, clarify something. Our faith in particular ought to be lived out, not just through our trials, but in how we respond to the word. There ought to be that kind of fruit that comes out of our faith. How can we have a faith that saves us if there's no works? Chapter three, the whole chapter is about our words. We stumble in many ways. If we could just not stumble in what we say, we'd be a perfect person. We shouldn't be having out of our mouth come blessing of our brothers and then cursing of our brothers. A, uh, a spring shouldn't bring up bitter water and, and, and fresh water. It ends about wise speech and wisdom in general. Worldliness, a very in, 
just powerful indictment of worldliness in chapter 4 and into chapter 5, ending with the concept of our faith and our trust. That's as simple an outline as I could give you. Trials, true faith, wise speech, worldliness, and patient faith in a nutshell, the book of James. Now, in starting our first epistle, I wondered how I was going to end all of these, and I just thought I'd say this, as long as it's I got the microphone. My favorite things about these books. So I'm going to list after every one of these books the things I love about these books. Ready? I love this. James never coddles Christians in crisis. He never coddles Christians. These are suffering Christians. He says it up front, and he doesn't baby these people. Matter of fact, he goes hard after them. You'd say, you would like that, Pastor Mike. Well, I just like the fact that he is not treating them like snowflakes. You know, he's, he's treating them as grown-ups. He dignifies them by saying, come on, I know you're going through hard times, but you cannot be the way you're being. There's a lot of confrontation and correction in this book, and I respect that about the way God used James to confront them. I also love the fact that he demands biblical application. That's how it starts. You can't look in the mirror of God's word and not apply it. And so much of what he goes on to say, the wisdom from above has to be applied this way. He demands it. He says, this is wrong. And that's what the whole chapter two is about. It's about, it springs from chapter one and that you cannot look at the word and not respond to it. That's what Jesus taught. If you do what I say, you'll be blessed in your doing. And he says that if you put the word into action. That man is going to be blessed in his doing, his activity. And so it should be that your, your faith should produce fruit. I love the fact, too, if you're talking about sermons, he doesn't stay up here, does he? This is a sermon that meddles in the nitty-gritty of life. It's the kind of preaching that I think you'd want to be a part of, even though it's uncomfortable. The kind you might write a letter of complaint about when you first start going to the church. But eventually you would like the fact that he cares about the nitty-gritty of your life. And he wants to see the Word of God affect your life in the details. I love that about the book of James. Of course, I love this. Everyone loves this. The clear distinction between faith that doesn't work and faith that works. There's such crystal clarity about that. Even the demons believe and it's nothing. It doesn't save them. So you got to love that about the book. And I also appreciate this very much, the realistic teaching about the taming of the tongue. It's realistic in that it starts with, we all stumble in many ways. If we could just not sin with our mouth, man, that would be great. And then he goes on to say, it ought to be that you control your mouth. There's that kind of a loving, kind of, of, of understanding the weakness that we have and yet not backing down on the fact to saying we got to push ourselves harder in this area. God has to work in our mouths to get this to be more consistent than it is. And yet I know it's like, the, it's like John saying in John, First John chapter 1, You know what? If you say you're without sin, you're lying. And then by chapter three, you had better be doing the right thing. That's the kind of of, of realism. I like both sides of that in James. He does not let up on what God's word demands. And yet he's very realistic about the fact that we're not going to master this, this side of heaven. And I don't think there's a, there's a more firm call out in the new Testament about worldliness, the worldliness that leads him to say you're spiritual adulteresses. That, That is just hardcore writing, preaching. That's crazy, but it's so clear. A friend with the world is hostility toward God. It only takes a little bit of friendship with the world to get God jealous. Number seven, I love how quick paced it is. It's just a short book, five chapters, and yet you're moving from one thing to the next. And the breadth of topics that is covered in the book of James keeps that chapter after chapter fresh. I mean, the longest section is probably on the tongue, maybe on works. I'd have to compare the two, but most of the time we're moving so quick. I mean, if you're a young preacher and you get a chance to preach through a book, this is the kind of book you want to start with, right? It's just bam, 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 bam. And it doesn't feel like 179 sermons in in Luke, I can tell you that. Uh, This is much more quick-paced than that. All right. 